Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Julie Cook. Julie is the business owner and director of Acacia Learning, a a leading provider of CIPD accredited courses for HR and learning and development professionals. Julie, warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. That's my pleasure. It's a real pleasure having yourself on the air with us as well, Julie. Now, the purpose of this discussion, first and foremost, is to establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in by looking at that word leader in isolation, first and foremost, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Well, the word leaders does, for me, it, it is a particularly poignant word. It, it's got so much more personality, if you like, than just manager. Um, and it suggests inspiration. And I suppose if we think about looking back in history, what we thought of as a leader, maybe we think of Winston Churchill or whoever. Um, so it's somebody that, that um, goes that extra mile that um, stands out in people's uh, thoughts and feelings. And there's a certain degree of people management as well that comes into leadership. I suppose we can say that leadership and management are separate things, but I think there is a little bit of overlap in people management in the sense that you're able to approach different personalities in different ways, really get the best out of them, motivate them. That's incredibly important to be an inspiring leader, as you say. Yes, absolutely. So um, managers, of course, are necessary, but managers suggest there's a um, there's almost a path to follow, et cetera, et cetera, with leadership has to come a little thing from the from the heart and soul. That doesn't mean to say you can't learn leadership skills. We, as well as doing the CIPD suite, we do the um, Institute of Learn- uh, Leadership and Management Qualifications as well. Um, so that, that's quite interesting to look at the, mm. at the lower levels of, of, of um, management is very much a manager and um, and leaders perhaps at the higher level. But I think uh, that's kind of changed a little bit with COVID when people have um, people have, uh, are, are staying with um, uh, being a little bit more inspirational um, uh, and um, and and being a little bit uh, 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 thinking outside the box, perhaps a bit mm. more creative, and people that really stepped up to the mark in difficult and challenging circumstances. Yes, I would agree that the recent COVID-19 situation has really brought out the best in a lot of people in the face of adversity. And it has brought some positives in the sense that businesses have been forced to innovate, I think, as um, of course, as you rightfully said there, uh, Julie. Um, I will touch on COVID-19 very more um, in a little bit more detail um, in a moment. But um, with regards to that word inspiration that you mentioned a couple of times now, I'm interested just to backtrack and maybe gauge have there been any individuals that have stuck out during your career that have maybe been an inspiration and an influence on yourself and your style of leadership? Um, yes. I mean, I, I've been blessed with having some um, great figures to, to work with. Um, one um, that I particularly um, got a lot out of was uh, the my manager when I was senior training officer at Croydon Council, so the council's training and development manager was Ever so, it was my first uh, full-time L&D role, and he was really helpful, supportive, but setting challenges for me, um, but just at the right level. You know, keep I guess keeping me on toes and keep me growing and developing, and uh, that that certainly um, was a, a good role model for me to, to to be a manager and to just go the extra mile. 
I think it goes to show as well, doesn't it, that some of the most influential leaders out there can be some of those people who are closest to us, such as friends, colleagues, mentors, teachers as well. And that leads me very nicely on to, again, the current COVID-19 situation, Julie, because I'm interested to know, given especially the recent emphasis on mental health and well-being as a result of this crisis, as to how things have been behind the scenes at Acacia Learning with adapting to the pandemic and how members of staff, clients, etc. have really taken to this. Yes, I think uh, we, 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 we've coped fairly well with it. Um, I wasn't sure to start with how well it would all work with people being working from home for the first time for the office team. Our tutors are all, all home-based anyway, so less of an impact on them. But I guess part of their life, and particularly maybe talking about their mental well-being, was the face-to-face rea- um, interaction in classrooms with, mm. with people. So working from home, fine when you're doing preparation and marking, um, but actually then going out from the home and, and, and actually having the face-to-face interaction with the students um, was a bit I think some of them have missed. Um, uh, in terms of the office team, I think uh, everybody's coped very well. And interestingly, some people absolutely love it, particularly want to go back to traveling to the office. Other people are very keen for when everything hopefully goes back to almost normal in September when the schools are back, um, that they can um, go back to their, their previous existence. So um, I think that's, that's worked quite well for us. And um, I think we're moving to a world now when it won't be the norm for everybody to be in the office five days a week, um, that there'll be a lot more flexibility about, about working places. If we think about that sort of shift in working practice in a little bit more detail, what role do you think that the office environment will actually play in the future of work, both within Acacia Learning and in the wider world? Well, I think it will, will, will still play an important thing, and we certainly keep the office team going um, by having a, um, a, a a team meeting um, online every Monday morning, and then lots of phone calls with people and um, Zooms and all the other technology that's around about various things. So it's definitely stepped up the level of communication, which I think is uh, quite common in, in, in organizations that are do, dealing okay with this. Um, but the, the level of communication with people is increasing. I still think there is a desire for a, a, a face-to-face, and uh, I think particularly I think for social things. So uh, mm. if you're on screen, um, uh, a lot of the day, then perhaps in the evening rather than do a, a an office quiz online, I think people are looking forward to maybe the days when we can go back to having going having a pub quiz um, in in a pub um, with some nice pub food and uh, actually being close to each other in each other's company. So uh, when when life becomes a little bit more normal, I think uh, people will still value the um, the social life that goes with um, an office environment. I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, uh, Julie, for sure, because we have taken that human contact for granted, haven't we? Certainly. And um, while we're on the topic of working practices um, as well, during this pandemic, we have seen a great deal of debate about government guidelines on working practices and how they can continue to essentially function safely, how businesses can remain open and what will be required of businesses that are going to be reopening in the next few weeks and months. Um, In your case, have you been satisfied throughout this pandemic that you've understood exactly what's been expected of you and you continue to do so? Yes, I think the the communication's been pretty good. Okay, it's uh, fast-changing and there's been one or two little hiccups. Um, But um, certainly the health and safety executive guidelines have been fantastic. And we're very well-placed around um, health and safety. We do the full gamut of health and safety qualifications for our subsidiary company, Oak Tree 
management and training. And um, so we've got experts on hand to ensure that our workplaces and our, our procedures for deciding who comes back to them and when and how um, is, is state of the art. Exactly right. And um, as we begin to sort of look at what the uh, the new normal is uh, going to uh, bring, um, Julie, do you expect that some of the more remote side of things are going to become standard practice, particularly within Acacia? Um, I think uh, there will be an increase in um, what we do for uh, for our training delivery is something called live online. So um, it's a bit like the experience you might have in a in a Zoom meeting, for example, where you can see and talk to everybody. You can put messages in the chat chat box, um, and um, it, it, rather than a, some of the online learning things which are pretty more pre-recorded and not very interactive and don't really build up a community. And I think with our, our learners, as well as having those live online classes, they've all got their WhatsApp groups. And so I think a lot of that will carry on. I think there still will be an appetite for returning to a classroom, having that face-to-face experience as human beings. Um, and I think it will probably depend a little bit on people's personal circumstances. So I think overall there'll be more online, a higher percentage of stuff will be online. But but uh, I still think there will be face-to-face and there's certainly already an appetite for it. We're already getting um, people asking us for, for when we're going to, when it's going to happen and we're always starting to talk to our venues about when we might reopen. Obviously, taking health and safety issues into account will be benchmarking probably very much against universities about when they're going face-to-face will be a, probably our, our standard benchmarkers. That's a nearest to equivalent for us. It's certainly going to be changing times. It's about striking a balance, isn't it, between working practices and essentially catering to the needs of people with that sort of focus on mental health and well-being in mind, certainly. Um, Interestingly, during this time um, as well, Julie, we've seen that as much as it's been a very difficult and a very tragic time for businesses and communities alike, um, it has been a huge learning experience as well. And it's bred a lot of resilience in those businesses that have made it through the uh, the pandemic thus far. Um, Is there anything that you have taken away as a real positive from this experience or anything that you've really learned from this? Well, I think one thing is um, trusting your valued employees to um, to work remotely and, um, and 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 still to deliver to a very high, not even higher standard. So, um, advantage I guess for for Keisha, we're quite a small business, so we're quite agile and we move really quickly. From uh, uh, all our classes went online on the nineteenth of um, March, and the office was uh, we moved out the office on the twentieth of March. So, um, you know, the fact that we um, we've learned how to be pat ourselves on the back and be proud of the fact we're small and agile. Um, but I think even large organisations have become massively more agile than they were before and, and had to um, learn to change much faster. And particularly big, normally big bureaucratic organisations like the NHS had to do some quite mm. quite swift movements in, in terms of how they work and have to keep that under review and keep changing it. Um, so I think um, uh, as an economy, I think that would probably be very good for us. The fact that we've all learned to change quickly, to be agile, um, to, to uh, be less formal about how we do things, perhaps, um, and, and, and look at new ways and be prepared to change as and when other circumstances require us to.
Mm. Agility and flexibility are two hugely important aspects, not just in business, but also in leadership as a whole as well. And if we now, if we now sort of swift switch focus, uh, Julie, before we wrap things up on the program to think about the future now under this new normal that everybody's talking about, um, what do you envision over the next 12 months for yourself and for Acacia? And what do you really hope to achieve as we move into the next stage of the pandemic and begin to focus on the longer term future? Well, well, we'd hope that um, that companies won't be automatically thinking, goodness, times are hard, we must slash our training budgets. I think that would be a really, really big mistake. And that's where I think uh, HR and leadership and learning and, um, learning and development people have a role to play in, in talking to their and influencing the senior leaders in their organisations to to. We need to take a longer-term view. We live in a fast-changing world. Companies still need to invest in learning and development. And uh, it's not enough um, just to say, oh, well, that can all wait. Um, Fortunately, things can't really wait. Things have to move on or move on a pace, I think. So um, we're we're expecting things to be be, 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 be pretty good, I think. Uh, Obviously, renewed emphasis on well-being, health and safety, um, uh, IT skills, and agility and leadership and management skills will all be good for our business and hopefully for plenty of other businesses as well. Um, the fact that the 4th of July has been announced for a lot, lot of things now to reopen, I think that's the beginning of the, the return to a more normal way of life for everybody. And let's certainly hope that we do start seeing a return to some form of normality sooner rather than later. Um, It's one thing actually speculating on what the next few months might bring in that respect, but it's another thing entirely letting the time pass and then looking back and analysing exactly what's happened. So given how informative and insightful it's been having you join us on the programme today, Julie, I think it would actually be fantastic, both for myself and from a listener's perspective, to actually have you back on at some point in the next year just to see what exactly has changed and to catch up on how things are getting on behind the scenes at Acacia as well. Yes, that would be wonderful. I'd really like that opportunity. I think it would be fantastic, as I say, not just for myself as host here, but also for the listeners tuning into this, um, because it's been a real pleasure having you on the other programme with us this afternoon, Julie. It's a shame we don't have more time otherwise, and we could discuss it long into the evening, I'm sure. Um, But until we do touch base again, which I'm sure we will in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on in the meantime, because although things are starting to slowly return to some form of normal, we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet, that's for sure. Thank you, Scott. Been a pleasure. That was Julie Cook speaking, business owner and director of Acacia Learning. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett actually rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have 
confidence and courage, obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000. All all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, Uh, we'll be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. 
and that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of, 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of action that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.